brother could become a showy caricature of their written selves, and yet Ruffalo lives in the small, quiet moments, as well as big, explosive outbursts. That's Ben Travers of IndieWire talking about I Know This Much Is True, an HBO miniseries, four parts down, two more to go. That's the main review we're doing this time here on Cinephile. Also, we're going to touch on The Mindy Project, Unsolved, which was a show on USA Network a couple years ago. I watched an episode of each, and also Body Double, as we continue our unofficial Brian De Palma look back. We've uh, talked about a couple of his other movies here in recent weeks, including Carrie. Uh, this time we're going to talk about Body Double, which was a 1984 film. Uh, we also have a terrific interview. Christian Sparks is a Canadian filmmaker. He's got an excellent crime thriller. It's called Hammer. It's out on VOD this Friday on Amazon, Apple, Vudu, you name it. It's really good. I enjoyed it a lot. We're going to talk to him about his life and upbringing in Newfoundland. Our Mel Rushmore of female comedians in honor of Mindy Kaling and Total Recall, the 2007 Oscars, the film's from 2006. But first and foremost, thank you to all of you on Twitter. You can always follow me on Twitter, Adnan S. Burke. And of course, our handle is CinephilePod. Normally, we do these audiograms here on Cadence 13. So if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you're aware of what those are. And Joe and our terrific social media team put together a 30, 45 second, one minute clip of you know, some section here of Cinephile, put it out there in the hopes that people will click on and of course, listen to the podcast. To be perfectly candid, normally those get in the range of, I would say at minimum 3,000 views, maybe 5,000 views. And in the case of Succession, which is a very popular show, we put an audiogram out of that, I think we got 9,000 views, maybe about 10,000. So last week, we clearly struck a nerve here in a heated climate of the world in which we live in by my giving a very mediocre review to Ozark, in which I called the show Derivative and bland and predictable, and aside from Laura Linney and Julia Garner, not a show that I would recommend and that I regretted spending 30 hours on the show. Of course, if you listened to Cinephile last week, I'm condensing my comments. I urge you to look back and listen to what I had to say because it was obviously much more in-depth. To say it struck a chord would be a mild understatement. I was taught years ago by my friend Jason Romano at ESPN Social Media, in order to tweet, and I'm sure this has changed, perhaps, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., Monday to Friday is the opportune time. I tweeted this around a little after 2 o'clock on Wednesday, whenever it was that Joe had sent me the audiogram. Joe, I don't know if you've actually checked my Twitter right now, but of course, what I immediately did was each person that agreed with me, I would retweet, and everybody who was bashing me, I would either ignore or perhaps put a flippant comment. Generally, in Twitterverse, if you can go 50-50, that's an incredible win. At one point, I was trending 40-60, meaning 40% were defending me, 60% were killing me. By the end, I'll be honest, it was about 30% defending me, saying, you're right, Ozark is wildly overrated, and 70% saying, you're a buffoon, an idiot, an intellectual snob, you take yourself seriously. The one that hurt particularly the most, the guy who said, you're not a part of the academy, get over yourself. So, of course, I had to check his bio and say, well, why don't you get over being a Bengals fan, because he has 18 followers. That led to a nice back and forth. But... Um, Joe, do you want to take a guess at how many views we ended up getting? Because I, I did, listen, I'll be, I want some name drops. Chris Long, my man Chris Long of my beloved Philadelphia Eagles. Thank you for bringing a Super Bowl championship. Chris Long we did at one point, not criticizing me, but again, took the completely different tact of me. Uh, again, I said Jason Bateman is woefully miscast. He said Bateman's the best part of the show. I said Laura Linney's the best part of the show. He said, God, if I have to watch her one more time with those slit eyes and that condescending look on her face, I'm just going to throw the TV through the window. Julia Garner, I said, is great. He said, 
enough with the tough-talking Ruth. Now, Chris was, wasn't being negative. He was just disagreeing with me. But once he got into the action, I said, okay, here we go. Peter Rosenberg, my old buddy from ESPN, huge uh, hip-hop guy in New York City, he crushed me. He said, love you, but this is a horrific, t- I think he put, this is a horrible take. This is the role Jason Bateman is going to be known for. I said, love you too, Peter. There's no way he'll remember this. It's, of course, Michael Bluth, Arrested Development. Years from now, hundreds of years, people will say, oh, yeah, my, Jason Bateman, Michael Bluth, one of the greatest shows of all time. So this was the extent of what people were going on. It led to me some strong entertainment for much of my day last Wednesday. Joe, a roundabout way of seeing, do you want to take a guess how many views we got of that audiogram? Okay, I'll go with... Uh... I'll go with 95K, 95K. 155,000. We blew the doors off that audiogram. And I swear to you, I was going to tell you, in light of COVID-19, when everyone's dealing with here, hey, we don't have to do these. You know, people are busy. It's okay. But clearly, pissing people off about a well-liked show is the way to go. So you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and cut myself in two, and I'll start criticizing all my favorite shows to get the ratings up. I'll bash The Sopranos, you know, curb your enthusiasm sign, but whatever it takes. We'll just be a professional troll here on Twitter, as long as it means all those people who killed me (laughs) are subscribing to Cinephile or rating and reviewing. So I'm going to ask Joe to check the numbers in a couple days. Please, 155,000 views. I would think with the bashing I was taking and the amount of people were telling me that I was a moron, uh, let's hope we got those numbers up. But there is something to be said here, Joe. As you know, I was being authentic in my comments. I mean, I, I was most dismissive of the people saying, you're being a troll. And I said, no, if you listen to the podcast, you know I speak my opinion. You know, The Irishman is a critically acclaimed movie, which got 10 Oscar nominations, but I'll be the first one to say, if you go by Twitter in the general public, I think it got mixed reviews. Uh, Joker is a film that got 11 Oscar nominations. It got critical approval, and yet I didn't like it. So I'm going to give my opinion when I disagree with people. And in the case of Ozark, it didn't work for me. Generally speaking, am I going with the flow? I suppose. Succession's a a critically acclaimed show, well-liked. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, you know, I mentioned Kirby Enthusiasm. Next, we're going to talk about Rami, season two, a show which I love, a Golden Globe winner for Rami. So... As Joe knows, I'm authentic when it comes to this. I'm not trying to get clickbait here. I'll let everybody know when I want to get clickbait, all right? When I start, like I said, start crushing my own sacred heroes just to get the numbers up. But uh, Ozark, the, only, the best point I will say is this by Michael Bowie, who's a terrific actor we've had on the show. This is the only point he made which actually made sense. He said, perhaps, and he loves the show for the record, perhaps you were hurt by binging. And I think he's right about this. When you're binging, you can't wait to get to the next episode to see what happens. It's very much plot-driven. And if I was watching Ozark 10 episodes you know, once a year, perhaps I would enjoy the slow-paced rhythms and would have enjoyed the feel of the show rather than, hey, when do we get to the next part? God, this is so boring. When's something going to happen? Rather than, oh, I'm really enjoying this journey on. I do think there's something to be said for that, and that's the negative part of binging. I don't think... If I'd watched the show once a year, I'm going to tell you I think it's a great show. But I may have enjoyed it more. I may not have been calling it a poor man's Breaking Bad. Having said that, sometimes when you binge watch, it's the best. I'll never forget, Homeland Season 1 was one of the great binge experiences of my life. My wife and kids were away. I must have watched Homeland, I think, in, man, I don't know about an entire day, but it was definitely over the weekend. And I said, this show is incredible. And, of course, then it fell off the map in Season 3. Succession, as I just mentioned, binge watch. I love doing it. It allowed me to really enjoy the momentum of the show. But, Joe, your thoughts on the, the downside of binging, whether or not that's ever impacted you personally? Yeah, I think I think it definitely has. I think a show like Game of Thrones, for example, is a better show to binge versus go from week to week. And I guess, you know, to your point, this is a show that 
may be better when the full season's out and you're only getting it yearly versus being able to watch all 30 hours at once. I just like the idea that this is the episode where you're turning heel, Adnan. Uh, it's like you know Hulk Hogan going to Hollywood Hogan. <laughs> so so everyone, look out for that. The Sopranos review coming next week. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to go ahead and be full heel from now on and embrace this. As always, you can go to Apple Podcasts, please. 155,000 people, all the ones that hated me. Just do me a favor. Just go to Cinephile on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review, and I appreciate all of you. Speaking of The Sopranos, I did get a, a DM from someone. People love sliding into my DMs. Abdul Aziz, just finished The Sopranos. Can I get your take on the finale? What the F happened? Well, guess what? You can go back and listen to The Bottom Binge. Me and Joe went through every episode of The Sopranos, including the ending in detail. So you can always go back to previous episodes here of Cinephile and uh, check out all the answers to all the questions that you may have. All right, let's kick this baby off and talk about I Know This Much Is True, which is an HBO miniseries based on the best-selling novel by Wally Lamb, written and directed by Derek C. M. France, and starring Mark Ruffalo. This limited series follows Dominic Birdsey as he struggles to care for his twin brother, Thomas, while discovering the truth about his own family history. I've never uh, read the book by Wally Lamb. I'm aware of it. I know he's an author who definitely deals with uh, a lot of heavy subjects. And this is about as heavy as it gets. Ruffalo, no surprise, is terrific in the dual role of twin brothers, Dominic and Thomas Birdsey. Thomas is the one who is bipolar. And in the very first episode, he cuts off his hand. That's right, folks. Uh, in a fit of rage and manic depression, he cuts off his own hand, and thus it's up to his brother to save him and try to help him as the afflicted brother is committed to a state hospital. And thus you have Dominic, who is the brother who is, you think, relatively well put together. I mean, he's a painter. He's got an ex-wife. All right, well, he's seemingly better off than his brother. He's going to try to help rescue his brother out of there. But the story then goes into their past. Uh, Oscar winner Melissa Leo, always like her. She plays their mother. Excellent cash uniform. I mean, listen, you got Catherine Hahn showing up playing Ruffalo's ex-wife. That would be Dominic, his ex-wife. Uh, Juliette Lewis showing up for the first time in a while. Loved her in Cape Fear. She plays Nendra Frank, who Dominic hires at one point to translate his grandfather's words. He's written in Italian, and he wants to translate it into English. They have a really weird love interest. And the real surprise, ready for this one, Rosie O'Donnell playing Lisa Sheffer, who is somebody who is committed to helping Dominic get his brother Thomas out of prison. Rosie O'Donnell, short hair, gray hair now, got the glasses on, empathetic figure, uh, unrecognizable at first, but a very strong dramatic role. Archie Punjabi also in the role playing a psychologist. But this is one of those shows that is heavy. And I don't mean like Back to the Future, like when... Marty keeps saying this is heavy, and Doc's asking for the Earth's gravitational pull. I mean heavy in terms of somber, dramatic subject matter. Not only a guy who's bipolar, but spoiler alert, you've got a baby that dies relatively early on. Just a shot of a baby coffin is enough to make one weep. You've got miscarriages. You've got estrangement. You've got abuse. You've got parental abuse. I believe there's sexual abuse at one point. I mean, it is... It is a heavy show. And again, this is where with binging, I think with binging, it might have been too much to handle. I'd say, listen, I can't sit here and watch this and wallow in the muck and the misery. But when it's once a week on HBO, I'm allowed to separate myself and appreciate the strength of it, which is clearly acting. It's hard enough to play one role, but Ruffalo makes the bipolar character sympathetic and heartbreaking while at the same time showing how dangerous this guy can be. And the role of Dominic, which is the main role, is even stronger because, again, you think he's the well-put-together brother, but he's got anger issues. He's dealing with an ex-wife. He's got tragedy. And as you see, trauma afflicts him, and he's got a just a burning rage 
which is tough to handle. As Rosie O'Donnell says to him at one time, you got you to cool that Sicilian temper of yours because it gets you into a lot of trouble. In terms of the shooting style, I mentioned Derek C. in France. If you know him, um, he's obviously an independent filmmaker who has a really specific style. I talked about Jason Bateman, his love of focus pulls. Well, there's one thing about Derek C. in France. That guy loves extreme close-ups. At, at times, it works to his advantage because with Ruffalo's performance, particularly in the quiet moments, it'll make you right up on his face. It'll make you literally can't get a break at all. At times, I think it's distracting. For example, when the characters are driving. I mean, an extreme close-up. Think about this. The camera at the, is at the, just above your eyebrows, and the bottom of the frame is just below your chin. You know, like a true close-up is shoulders up. This is like a, a real ECU, to use the film term. And at times, you go, God, just give me a break. Can I just can I cut away a little bit? It's kind of like with 1917, you know, the way that Mendes kept following the characters, it was very claustrophobic. You were never allowed a cutaway. So I think that's maybe seeing Francis' intent, or quite frankly, it's just his style. His previous work, The Place Beyond the Pines, the Ryan Gosling movie, very good. At least two-thirds of it. Eva Mendes, Ray Liotta, Bradley Cooper. Blue Valentine, again, very heavy domestic drama. Also starred uh, Ryan Gosling. Uh, so those are a couple of his previous credits. And certainly he's a filmmaker I think is very good and likes dealing with heavy subject matter like this. But I think in one watch, it's awfully tough. When you're able to space it out, it's rewarding, particularly the performances of a guy, Mark Ruffalo, Joe, who I think is about as strong an American actor as we have. I talked about Laura Linney previously. You can count on me. That was Ruffalo's breakout role. Go back and look at some of the reviews. People were comparing Ruffalo to Brando, not in the sense that Marlon Brando is the greatest actor of all time, arguably, but Ruffalo, that performance specifically was a lot like Brando in On the Waterfront, mumbling, shy, you know, a sweet, sensitive guy beneath this rugged exterior. I mean, if you look at his, his you know, commercial films, obviously the guy's Hulk, for God's sakes. I'm sure he's made a lot of money, uh, but he's terrific in independent rooms as well. You know, it could be Zodiac. It could be Spotlight. Um, he was Oscar nominated for Foxcatcher. If you're a fan of Mark Ruffalo, Joe, I recommend I Know This Much Is True. Definitely. We'll check it out. Huge fan of Mark Ruffalo. Everything he's done, been in, so good in Foxcatcher. I was reading one review for the show, and it kind of uh, touches on what you're talking about, but this writer was saying how they got quote compassion fatigue when watching it from all the heaviness of the show so you're, you're kind of telling me that you kind of got compassion fatigue if that makes sense yeah i mean i i'm gonna give it three maple leafs because of the performances uh, but i understand what matthew gilbert here says of boston globe i know this much is true misses the mark in terms of storytelling it just sits there a roiling mass of misery that fails to provide you with a compelling reason to keep watching. I disagree with him in that. I think the acting is strong enough. And I think if you have any sort of empathy, you care about this brother and what's going to happen to him. But he does make a point about the, the roiling mass of misery. Ashilo O'Malley of RogerEbert.com says, seeing actors do what they do best with CM Franz giving them the space to do it makes I know this much is true, a real feast. Right, that's on HBO. A couple more. I just want to quickly do the Mindy Project. This is a series I never saw. It was on from 2012 to 2017. The series follows obstetrician slash gynecologist Mindy Lahiri, Mindy Kaling, as she tries to balance her personal and professional life surrounded by quirky coworkers and a small medical practice in New York City. The reason I'm mentioning this is my sister-in-law is a big fan of it, and my wife you know, criticizes me, rightfully so. I don't have enough female-oriented... Uh, shows in my life with the exception of uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So I watched one episode. I thought it was all right. I mean, I had no reason to continue. I'm certainly not going to want to watch 40 or 50 episodes. Decent supporting cast, Ike Barinholtz, Chris Messina. But I figured this would just be a jumping off point for our Mount Rushmore of female comedians. And the one thing I really do like about Mindy Kaling is 
Very self-deprecating. I mean, at times self-lacerating. As you can tell, I'm a big Charlie Kaufman fan. And talking about adaptation, I'm sure Mindy Kelling's a fan of that movie because she will never miss a chance to make fun of her weight or her looks. At times, it's a little bit mean-spirited. Um, but it certainly is an entertaining show. So, listen, if you need a little light touch right now, you want a comedy, you could do worse than a sitcom like Mindy Project. I watched 30 Minutes, was mildly entertained. Alan Seppel of Rocks writes, The Mindy Project was messy, but when it worked, boy, it was fun. I mean, it's a happy, satisfying romantic comedy. Joe, I just feel like in the world these days, if somebody wants a little light touch, how about the Mindy Project? Definitely. And Ike, Ike Barinholtz is in it too. He's great. Adam Pally makes appearances in it. He's great. Um, yeah, and I, I like her. I, I've just liked her whole career and her trajectory. She's so smart and talented. And now she's, as of last week, writing, uh, co-writing Legally Blonde 3. So everyone can uh, expect that to come out sometime in the next two years. Yeah, I like the fact, like you said, she's not just an actress, but she's used that muscle to to be a writer and a producer as well. So kudos to her. Uh, one more quick one before we get into more De Palma. This is Unsolved, The Murders of Tupac and the Notorious B.I.G. on USA Network. Again, one of my wife's friends recommended it. Season one of the true crime series follows the investigations of the murders of Tupac and the Notorious B.I.G. In 1997, Detective Russell Poole starts digging into Biggie's death and covers a ring of corruption the plagues the LAPD. In 2007, Detective Greg Pating, Josh Dumel reopens Poole's new cold case with the help of Federal Task Force. So I didn't care for it. The reason I'm mentioning it is I watch one episode, and I think it's seven episodes. I, I'm simply mentioning it because if you're a Biggie and Tupac fan, I think you'll love it. And I can certainly rec- uh, you know, respect their work, their impact on culture, and their greatest hits. I mean, listen, who doesn't love Big Papa, Ten Crack Commandments? I love Dear Mama. Old School is Great by Tupac, but I'm not a huge fan. So the, the scene where Josh Duell is listening to Piggy's music and the guy asks him for a recap, and he goes, that just sounds like a lot of dick jokes and bragging about his sex life. I'm like, yeah, that, that's kind of my vibe on a lot of this gangster rap as well. But I mention it because of the fact I'd previously mentioned Ryan Murphy, who so often looks at real-life events. I love the, uh, the OJ documentary that he did. So it's something along those lines. I mean, it's something different. If you like those characters, you like true crime stuff, why not check out Unsolved? It's currently available on streaming. And as Craig D. Lindsay of The Village Voice writes, Unsolved does subtly show us the life and times of Biggie and Tupac have seeped into our public consciousness over the years. Their untimely deaths have turned them into unexpected martyrs whose ghetto gospel many now revere as canon. And the other part of it that I think about specifically now my man Joe is from Minneapolis, St. Paul area. We all know what's happened right now, the protests across the country. He himself has been involved with the protests, which I strongly support and admire. You know, just imagine right now, Joe, Biggie and Tupac are around, how much they'd be lightning rods for what's happening in this country and how much attention they'd be giving to something like George Floyd and uh, you know, obviously trying to do the best for, in terms of social activism and their community. 100%. And, and, and Tupac particularly in all the activism that, that he displayed when he was alive and speaking out against police brutality, especially in the wake of Rodney King at that time. I, I can't imagine the impact that they would have if they were still around today. I know Jay-Z called the governor of Minnesota to offer you know his thoughts on it, so I imagine that they would be kind of in that same vein of just concerned citizens about what's going on right now. Yeah, Killer Mike I also saw was giving an impassioned statement as well. So it's good to see uh, all artists coming up. We'll talk about some other social activism in a sec. But I did want to mention Body Double. That's right. I'm continuing my Brian De Palma retrospective. Still building up to blowout for Joe. Here's a synopsis of the 1984 film, which uh, avid listeners of Cinephile know. Our recent guest, Rob Paulson, is in Body Double. He's great, by the way. 
He does have that one line, where's the cum shot? Hysterical. Because he's getting frustrated as the AD as to when exactly this porn film is going to reach climax. But I get ahead of myself. Here's the synopsis. Craig Wasson plays Jake, a struggling actor who keeps losing jobs because of his claustrophobia. To make matters worse, his girlfriend has walked out on him so he has no place to sleep. His pal offers him the use of his apartment for the evening. The apartment happens to be equipped with a huge picture window and telescope enabling him to spy on his beautiful neighbor Gloria while she undresses. He also bears witness to her brutal murder. And then he meets a porn star played by Melanie Griffith who's just taken a job posing as the late Gloria. Again, you talk about derivative. I mean, I don't know. Is Hitchcock brilliant? Because literally, as I read in that synopsis, you go, oh, so he's remaking Vertigo and Rear Window, or is he just a ripoff artist who's just cheapening the value of some great Hitchcock movies? I'll say this. I don't think Body Double works as well as Dress to Kill. I gave Dress to Kill three Maple Leafs. I'm going to give Body Double two and a half Maple Leafs. It is a little bit dated, and I do think that the third act isn't as strong as the rest of the movie, but... Again, as a Hitchcock fan, I just love the fact he keeps paying homage to one of the greatest directors of all time, particularly because, many don't think know this, I also suffer from claustrophobia. I cannot sit in a two-door car in the back seat without freaking out like you wouldn't believe. I'm like uh, Dustin Hoppin and Rain Band seeing the water. What does he say? Hot water got baby? Um, I can't sit in an airplane if there's three seats. I can't sit at the window seat. I'd rather sit in the middle seat because for some reason in my screwed up brain, I can at least get to the aisle. I, of course, would strongly prefer the aisle seat. Elevators, I'm relatively okay. Joe knows at Cadence 13, there's an elevator. You're going to go very high. I mean, it depends on the mood. I got to be honest with you. Some days, I'll just take the stairs. I'm not feeling great if it's a narrow elevator. But in general, claustrophobia, and I'm, I'm saying it with a smiling face because I think it's silly that my own... Uh, apprehensions about this. But to be real, I mean, listen, if you have like acute claustrophobia, it is a terrifying experience. I mean, to be perfectly frank, I remember the Toronto Raptors parade, which DAZN sent me to, I was getting a little queasy being on the outskirts of it. I mean, I couldn't imagine being in the middle of that thing, a million people going, oh my God, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. So that is to say, I can appreciate any sort of movie in which the main character suffers from an ailment to which I can appreciate. And even the way De Palma shoots his claustrophobia, it is reminiscent of Jimmy Stewart having vertigo in the Hitchcock classic. I think he's less successful in aping Rear Window. If you haven't seen that, of course, the great Jimmy Stewart film in which he's uh, got binoculars spying and sees a murder. Here it's a murder and the... the, the I just think the porn stuff doesn't work as well. It is kind of funny. Dennis Franz, by the way, is in the movie, apparently De Palma regular. He plays a, a porn director who at one point has given the main actors some uh, really funny direction. Interesting, though, Craig Wasson, who plays the main role, I know nothing about him. Maybe a quick IMDb search would help, but it's amazing. This guy got the lead role in a Brian De Palma film. I have no idea what else he's done. Of course, we all know Melanie Griffith. This is before she made other films, and uh, you know Antonio Banderas is better half. But it's uh, an interesting movie. Certainly, it helps me in that I'm trying to finish up my uh, Hitchcock oeuvre, but I don't think it's a particularly strong film on its own. Some funny tongue-in-cheek moments, but uh, the overall style doesn't mesh with the best of De Palma. Having said that, Kim Newman of Empire writes, once you get past the ridiculous story, this is a fine example of De Palma's lush overkill style and certainly has a redeeming thread of silly, sick humor. I'll give him that. Not just Rob Paulson. There's some funny parts. And body double from Paul Atanasio, Washington Post, finds Brian De Palma at the zenith of his cinematic virtuosity. Joe, you've seen this years ago. Do you remember anything about body double? I remember uh, overall liking it um, because I was just trying to expand my Brian De Palma catalog. Um, so, and, and 
hearing your review now, I can totally see how it would be kind of dated in 2020. Um, my question to you is, when are we, we should do this in the coming weeks, but when are we going to do the Brian De Palma Mount Rushmore? That's a great call. You know what? I'm going to have to find out where Blowout is streaming because I owe that to you. So once I find out where that is, I'm going to watch that. Then we're going to do a Brian De Palma Mount Rushmore. That is a great idea because we're definitely firing through all these classics right now. I like it. Good idea. Uh, that is it when it comes to the reviews. Coming up next, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back with entertainment news, including social activism in the wake of George Floyd's passing. An interview with Canadian filmmaker Christian Sparks. He's got a terrific new movie called Hammer, which is out this Friday. To be silent is to be complicit. Black Lives Matter. Netflix sharing that on social media on Saturday. Other streaming services and studios following suit. So Netflix standing in solidarity with nationwide protests over the death of George Floyd on Saturday by sharing on its social accounts the duty to our black members, employees, creators, and talent to speak up. To be silent is to be complicit. Black Lives Matter. Filmmaker Ava DuVernay applauded Netflix for his post, writing, Well done. Actress Sarah Paulson retweeted Netflix's message, writing, Silence is unacceptable. Uh, Netflix's message was shared across several of the streamers' series accounts, including Never Have I Ever and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Last Saturday evening, Amazon Prime joining Netflix in support of Black Lives Matter. Together, we stand with the black community and all allies in the fight against racism and injustice that Jeff Bezos founded streamers shared across his Instagram and Twitter. And Disney-owned Hulu tweeted, we support black lives today and every day. You are seen, you are heard, we are with you. HBO, HBO Max writing, neither love nor terror makes one blind, indifference makes one blind. That's a very powerful quote from James Baldwin. Stars also issuing a tweet. Viacom, CBS's Pop TV, Warner Brothers TV, and A24, we have been silent. Silence is an option. FX, CBS, Fox also tweeting condemning racism and discrimination. So clearly this is something which is affecting all of America, including the entertainment industry. In terms of other entertainment news, uh, Succession director, that's right, Taffer and Adam McKay produced searchlight thriller The Menu. Mark Mylod, whose name I got used to seeing after binge-watching Succession, he is one of the directors behind Succession. He's going to direct this film called The Menu. Adam McKay is an executive producer and director, sometimes in Succession. He's going to produce this project about the world of eccentric culinary culture. The film follows a couple who visit an exclusive restaurant on a remote island. Alexander Payne was previously attached to direct Emma Stone, previously in talks to star. So good to see uh, Succession, at least their tentacles, branching out a little further in terms of their director. All right, now it's time. Speaking of directors, our special guest, Christian Sparks. Well, a real pleasure welcoming here to Cinephile Christian Sparks at a terrific movie. It's called Hammer. And of course, I'm going to have him on because he's Canadian. But more importantly, the film is actually terrific. Give you a little bit of background on him. It's Christian's second feature film after making Cast No Shadow previously, as well as a few other shorts and other TV projects. Originally premiered the Whistler Film Festival last year. And Vertical Entertainment, I believe, is releasing this film direct to VOD starting this Friday, June 5th. Once again, the movie is called Hammer. Christian, thanks so much for joining us today on Cinephile. No, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Terrific movie. Uh, It's interesting. When I watch these kind of stories, father and son, of course, at one point I was a son, so I watched it thinking I was the young man who was in a heap of trouble. And then I watch it uh, thinking of the father, because now I've got kids of my own. And first and foremost, father-son stories to me always are uh, impactful. 
But particularly in this setting, this is a lean, taut, 76-minute crime thriller, hit the ground running. There's no need for a backstory. You know, this kid's gone through some troubles, which we allude to at times, but even you kind of get a feel of him, the smell of him, you know, okay, he's got a backstory. But I like that you you dispensed with that. You didn't need to get into this whole, you know, 30 minutes of where his life was. Hit the ground running. Here we go. What made you feel like that was where the story should begin, the moment of impact right away? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, it definitely wasn't my original intention. Like I, I knew I wanted to do a crime thriller, but I was kind of originally inspired by films more like kind of in the bedroom or those kind of like mid nineties kind of dramatic films that lean more on the drama than the, the kind of crime aspect. But, uh, as always, you kind of start in a place, but the story kind of takes on a life of its own once you put pen to paper. And, uh, once I came up with that kind of opening set piece, I knew I wanted to open with like, um, like a fairly dramatic real-time set piece. And uh, it just had its own momentum. And uh, once I wrote that and it felt good, I just kind of I just kind of kept going. Yeah, to give people an indication of what we're referring to, Quiet Border Town, Stephen Davis, played by Will Patton, waiting at a stoplight when his estranged son speeds past on a dirt bike. Mark O'Brien, his, his dad, sees him go by. Uh, tracking him down, Stephen discovers that Chris is on the run from a botched drug deal. He agrees to help him in an attempt to mend their relationship, but things quickly spiral out of control. I messed it up, by the way. Sorry, Will Patton plays the dad, Stephen Davis, his son, Chris, Mark O'Brien. Um, but as he yeah. sees him go spiraling out of control, a friend of Chris's goes missing. There's a vengeful drug dealer, and away we go. You mentioned in the bedroom, great film, Sissy Spacek, Tom Wilkinson, and you're right. Those kinds of movies, I feel like, don't get made enough dealing with those kind of, you know, uh, chambermaid dramas, so to speak, ordinary people, that kind of stuff. And you deal with this whole father-son dynamic and what's going on within, like you said, the elements of a crime thriller. So what was the genesis for it? Beyond in the bedroom, was there something that you felt like you wanted to explore when it comes to father-son dynamics and trying to deal with your past? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's actually very, very loosely based on a relationship between my father and my brother. Um, I had an older brother who actually got me into movies when I was younger. Uh, God bless him. And uh, he moved out west when he was, you know, early 20s and got involved in crime out there. And um, he was always really close with my family and my parents. And I think they always kind of knew what he was doing, but they never fully admitted it to him or to themselves because, you know, that's what we do with family and the people that we love. So I was really interested in that idea that, you know, the little secrets that we tell ourselves to protect the ones we love, how ultimately can uh, result in, in kind of heinous crime. So I use that as a springboard, that emotional kind of core to attach it to some kind of more pulpy crime thriller elements of films that I liked. And uh, yeah, that's where we end up. Well, I love that it has a really personal slant to it. I'm sure that was challenging to go through seeing your brother and your father dynamics. But part of what I also found really interesting is that... You know, everything is minute by minute, meaning, you know, everybody has had a situation of crisis and you realize that everything is dependent on your next action. And so, you know, the father's reaction at one point, he says, we got to call the cops. You know, that is the most logical instance in which to do so. Call the cops, they'll deal with it, et cetera. But the way that the kid is going through it, it's so systematic. I don't know. I got to take care of this first, then I'll save my brother, then I'll get the money, then we'll get the girl. We got to go find her. It's literally a step by step. And that is the way, I don't know if your brother specifically, you found his thinking, but I have found whenever reading about criminals or not even criminals, anybody who's been in trouble, you're literally just trying to go, hey, let me get to the next step, right? Let me just buy five more minutes. Let me buy 10 more minutes. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to solve this and it's okay. And I thought you really nailed that perspective really well. How were you able to do that specifically in the screenwriting process? 
Well, um, I was just going to say before you said that, I was like, part of it is obviously the actor Mark O'Brien just really thrives on that kind of like rapid talking. He's, well, kind of rapid talking persona, but he's also just a very likable person. I mean, you need to cast someone who's innately kind of likable to pull this off. Like, if you have a character who, even if their physical appearance or the way they talk, are kind of irritating or just untrustworthy, then uh, you're kind of dead in the water, you know? But at the same time, I mean, I, uh, I guess in the screenwriting process, you know, we're able to manipulate the people we love more than most other people in life because, you know, the fact that they love us to begin with is what we can use for our advantage when we need to. And you don't always want to, but in the, in the case of this film, I mean, the, the son is kind of forced to do that because everyone, you know, in all these crime films, you always think if you just do one more thing, you can save yourself without having to get the police involved or without anyone getting hurt. And you keep pushing your luck because people, I think, are just innately selfish, you know. But uh, in this film, it, it certainly comes at a cost at the end. Completely agree on the likability of the character uh, Chris Davis, played by Mark O'Brien. Once again, we're talking about Hammer, direct to VOD starting this Friday, June 5th. Tell me a little bit about Will Patton. He's certainly been in a lot of Hollywood projects over the years. I thought he really lent a strong air of authenticity and gravitas to the role of a father willing to do anything for his son. Absolutely. Well, I'd always been a big fan of uh, Will Patton growing up. I um. I mean, you'll probably remember this. Uh, you know, I used to tape movies on the VHS off my television when I was a boy and, uh, and kind of catalog them in a little, like, uh, Hillroy binder that I had. And uh, Will Patton was always... I had, I had a, a copy of No Way Out that I uh, filmed off the TV once when I was, like, 10. <laughs> and uh, Will Patton so great in that film. And uh, I liked him when I was a little boy and obviously tracked his career growing up through things like Armageddon or... Um, uh, I remember the Titans. And so I kind of needed someone in the father role who could be stern and, uh, you know, who you would believe had the physicality and the will to do some kind of heinous uh, criminal activity that was required to protect the son. But at the same time, someone who had a um, uh, could be sympathetic and had a humanity to them that you could relate to uh, without being too much of a superhero type or like, you know, a Dwayne Johnson or Arnold Schwarzenegger, just like, kick-ass kind of dad that's not the kind of tone we wanted so when he was recommended um uh it seemed like the perfect fit and i ended up chatting with him and the rest is history i agree with the physicality specifically because you're right it's one thing to be able to play the compassion along with the disciplinarian but can he actually handle himself and in a couple of scenes which are critical in the movie i think he i can buy it because i'm like no i can i can see this guy being able to handle himself in a tough situation how tough is it right now even making movies christian i'm not even talking about covid19 i'm talking about the, the the market in which we live you as i film lovers i'm sure you dreamed of being a movie director we've seen with movies and i've talked to a lot of filmmakers about this that you know, the market's become shrunk now. A lot of those indie movies that you and I probably loved in the 90s have now shifted towards uh, television, specifically streaming. And as Barry Jenkins told me, he said, now it's either $100 million for a superhero movie or a million bucks or something he made like Moonlight. How have you been able to navigate the film landscape? Well, I mean, you know, what Barry said, I mean, everyone kind of knows that by now, like the middle ground movies, you know, the 20 to $30 million movies are very difficult to make. Um, it's different for me. Like, I'm from a small island on the far east coast of Canada called, called Newfoundland. Um, you know, and, and in Canada, there's a funding system, a funding body called Telefilm Canada, supported by the government, as long as regional funding um, from the island I live on. That, uh, you know, if you want to make a movie that's anywhere between just, say, 800 grand and 2 million, 
you can kind of um, you can do that with those funding entities along with just like a, a broadcast license. So if you want to work small in that kind of scale, then the opportunities are actually available and they're pretty good in Canada. Um, but I mean, making a film is only the beginning. You know, getting people to see it is the really challenging part. And, uh, you know, with the never ending kind of void of content that exists in the world today uh, between Netflix and iTunes and all these things, I mean, God love them. But uh, it's hard not to feel like you're just throwing a, uh, you know, a penny into a vacuum at sometimes. Yeah, to your point, I feel like it's never been a better time for content creators because there's so many people who are looking for content. But at the same time, as you said, it's an incredible challenge because you get sucked up into the vortex of so much competition. You know, how do you kind of fight for scrap? So let's make it clear to everybody. Where do you find Hammer? Friday, June 5th. Where can people watch this terrific movie? So it's going to be on a bunch of kind of online platforms. It's on uh, Amazon, uh, Apple TV, uh, iTunes, uh, Vudu, amongst, amongst others. I definitely want people to check out Hammer and to get a sense of it. You mentioned Newfoundland. Uh, I was born in Toronto, grew up in Kingston, lived in Napanee for a little bit of a time. So I, I've never actually seen the great folks of Newfoundland. I hear great things about George Street. Been in Nova Scotia, of course. Tell me about Newfoundland. I, listen, I, I'm not even going to go with all the unfortunate jokes which are derided at the fine folks of Newfoundland, which in the rest of Canada likes to make fun <laughs> of. But I know, listen, great fishing, I'm sure, and very warm, friendly people. What was it like growing up in Newfoundland? That was amazing. I mean, you know, uh, any any kind of small town, like close-knit community, uh, very kind of rugged coastlines. Obviously, it's a, uh, it's a province that was built around the fishery. Um, you know, the fishery has since kind of... Um, uh, uh, gone by the wayside, so they've turned to other sectors like oil and gas and natural resources. So, you know, the province is doing fairly well right now, but in general, like you say, I mean, the, the tourism commercials, many of which I've, I've made in the past, are kind of world-class. World so anyone who, who's interested in seeing what Newfoundland is like, just Google Newfoundland tourism ads on, on YouTube and, and you'll get a good sense. Yeah, like I said, I, my cousins used to live in Halifax. I've been to Truro. I've been to PEI. As a kid, I went on a huge road trip with uh, some family friends. I've never gotten into New Brunswick or Newfoundland, so definitely on my list of checking off the maritime provinces. Lastly, how are you doing right now with, with COVID-19 in this unprecedented era? I'm obviously checking with family in Canada, and the numbers are significantly down there. And I think Prime Minister Trudeau has done an excellent job of trying to, to mitigate um, disaster with social distancing, et cetera. But how have you found it specifically for yourself and, and trying to get movies made? Are you just writing a bunch of scripts these days? I am indeed. I actually moved to Toronto uh, early in this year. Um, so I'm in Toronto right now in kind of like in the Leslieville area, which I'm sure you probably know. I, uh, oh, it's, yeah. It's, uh, it's tough, but I mean, for a lot of artists like myself, honestly, not a whole lot has changed. Like, I've been very productive. I tend to work from home um, editing or writing anyway. So, you know, I've already kind of like um, finished writing a script, which I think I have. It's looking likely that we will get funding for to shoot at the end of this year, early next, as long as everything goes ahead. That's an adaptation of a novel. And I'm, uh, I'm writing uh, another film on my own, which is almost done. So, uh, you know, you feel for everybody out there and you want to be careful. But work-wise, it's, uh, it's been pretty good. That's awesome, man. Christian Sparks, a real pleasure to chat with you today on Cinephile. Once again, folks, check out his movie. It's called Hammer. Amazon, Apple, Vudu, a variety of places you can get it this Friday. A terrific crime thriller and also a father and son story. Really appreciate the time today, man. Stay safe. Leslieville, terrific area, by the way. I, I, I know it very well. I have a close friend actually lives there. The housing, by the way, we can discuss the housing market another time in Toronto. I've been gone for 10 years. I'm sure your move earlier this year has been rather expensive going from Newfoundland to Toronto. It has. It has. It's, uh, I mean, the prices are ridiculous. It's 
pure greed, but that's a whole other whole other <laughs> conversation. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on today, man. I really enjoyed chatting with you. All right, my pleasure, Ben. Take care. Take care. Bye. Mount Rushmore. All right, in honor of Mindy Kaling, it's time now for our Mount Rushmore. This is a female comedian. So there's certainly a lot of great ones to get to. God, you look at this list overall, it's hard to go, especially when you're cutting across so many different genres. Um, I'm going to knock up Madeline Kahn right out of the gate because she's so great in a couple of great uh, Mel Brooks comedies, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Just the sight of Madeline Kahn, I start laughing immediately. This one is, now this might be a reach. Well, I'll mention it afterwards. Listen, I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is tremendous, okay? Seinfeld, uh, Adventures of Old Christine, uh, obviously Veep. I mean, the fact she's won so many Emmy Awards, I mean, it's ridiculous how many times she's been honored. So there's a couple for you right out of the gate. I thought about Amy Schumer, Amy Poehler. I mean, listen, there's a Legends division, certainly. I can include the likes of Carol Burnett and Lucille Ball. Um, I personally am not a huge fan of Whoopi Goldberg. Here's where we get interesting. Some of these other comedians like, you know, Whitney Cummings, do you get in the mix like that? Uh, Melissa McCarthy is obviously very funny. But instead, I'm going to go with Lisa Lampanelli because I find her roast absolutely tremendous. So I want to get at least one like female stand-up comic and she's, I think, absolutely outrageously funny. I'm going to go with one more, which is Kate McKinnon because I think she's got a lot of talent and I, I don't know how much stand-up she's done, but I think she's a very diverse comedic presence. So my Mel Rushmore female comedians, Madeline Kahn, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Lisa Lampanelli, and Kate McKinnon. The one I was hesitating on was Janine Garofalo, because I love her in the Larry Sanders show, and she just do some comedy. She has, however, not been prominent, I feel like, about a couple decades. So maybe a little bit of recency bias. I like a little more from her, but that is a strong honorable mention for Janine Garofalo. Uh, Joe, the floor is yours. I feel like you might go maybe with a Molly Shannon, maybe Roseanne. Where are we going? Samantha B., what do you got? Oh, boy. Well, first and foremost, I'll get Joan Rivers out of the way. Her influence as a stand-up, a woman doing stand-up in the 60s, and how she was able to reinvent her career time and again throughout the decades, I will give it to her. I'm also going to go with Melissa McCarthy because she brings she has a kind of humor that is just not innate to me i can't do it and that's such a physical throw your body on the line do anything for a joke type humor whenever she hosts snl i look forward to those episodes because i know she's just gonna go for it after that i will do carol burnett just from how talented she was and her stage background where during her live show or during her show she could change outfits in like 30 seconds for a bit um so just her versatility there and then i will go with lucille ball again just for her influence um not only on comedy but just television formatting everything after that and just sitcom but my honorable mention will be ali wong um i think she's the best female comedian stand-up right now and i like people who slug it out in the clubs to build up their career um I, i've talked about always be my maybe uh to you definitely check that out just for the count of reeves appearance but that's my list lucille ball joan rivers melissa mccarthy and carol burnett 
Good mix of the old and the new. I like the mention of Ali Wong. And listen, Lucille Ball, has seen never eaten chocolates when she's working the chocolate factory. I love Lucy. It was one of the great comedic scenes of all time. Surprised you didn't go with Sarah Silverman, who had her... I feel like she's waned a little bit in terms of popularity, but also very funny. I also loved her on the Larry Sanders show. A couple more honorable mentions here. Catherine O'Hara, who's a Canadian treasure. And Jane Lynch, who was also very funny. Always a scene stealer in performances. Lots of great female comics out there. Now it's time for Total Recall. We're revisiting the 2007 Oscars. These are the films from 2006 when Martin Scorsese finally got his due and won his first Academy Award. It's also in The Departed, won Best Picture. But should it have? Graham King was the producer. Who else was nominated that year, Joe? Babel, Letters from Iwo Jima, Little Miss Sunshine, and The Queen. I've said this before about The Departed. I mean, I, I like it. I like it a lot. I just don't think it's one of Scorsese's top five. I don't think it's one of his top seven. But he was clearly overdue, and it's an entertaining crime thriller, even if Jack Nicholson is maybe a little bit over the top. But I think Leo's terrific. Matt Damon, obviously Wahlberg, Martin Sheen. I enjoyed the twisty plot mechanics. Uh, I think Scorsese obviously directed it with a lot of energy and urgency. The last shot's a little too tongue-in-cheek for me, but it wasn't a strong year for movies, I'll be honest. Letters from Iwo Jima is an underrated Clint Eastwood film. Um, Ty Burr recently tweeted, the great film critic, Boston Globe, one of the four best Clint Eastwood-directed movies. He did a poll on Twitter, and he included Letters from Iwo Jima, which I was thrilled he did, because it doesn't get nearly enough due, and I'm glad it was nominated for Best Picture. It is a great film. Spielberg actually produced it, along with Clint Eastwood. Babel, I just found very heavy. Uh, the Queen was, again, period piece, stately. I wasn't uh, blown away by it. Of this list, my number two would be Little Miss Sunshine, which I think is a really funny, smart, sweet movie, uh, very watchable. But instead, if you ask me of these five, I do think The Departed is the best one, followed by Little Miss Sunshine, Letters from Iwo Jima. So I will go with The Departed, but I don't think this was a strong year, Joe, unlike Total Recall we did last week. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I guess I would go with... Little Miss Sunshine, just because it, 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 I like lighter comedic movies. They, I don't think they get as much recognition, though. I do love The Departed, too. But, Adnan, we'll talk about this as we get further down with the nominations. But I don't know how—I would put Pan's Labyrinth in there for Best Picture and Children of Men. Both came out this year, and both of them are not uh, nominated for Best Picture. Wow, great point. I watched Pan's Labyrinth again after I watched Shape of Water uh, for the second time, probably about a year ago, I watched Pan's Labyrinth again, and I liked it at the time, but when I watched it again, I go, God, are you kidding? How did that movie not get nominated for Best Picture? You couldn't be more right. I mean, that is so original. It's so Guillermo del Toro, which is to say it is both grotesque and disturbing and strange and just <laughs> weird, but it's also very sweet. I mean, I, I believe my cousin told me, I think it's like actually a metaphor for uh, child abuse, which is amazing the way he was able to do it. Couldn't agree with you more on that. And Children of Men, oh my God. R.T. Thorne, my dear friend, great director. Check out his series on Hulu. Uh, Children of Men is one of his all-time favorite movies. I mean, just directing-wise alone, look at the tracking shots Alfonso Cuaron pulls off in that movie. Dystopian thriller. You're right. God, what an omission. How did both those movies not get nine for Best Picture? Wow. All right. Best Director uh, with Scorsese, as I just said. It's not his best movie, but for God's sakes, he should have won five Best Directors by now. So, of course, he had to win an Oscar. Who else was up against him? Alejandro Iñárritu for Babel, Clint Eastwood for Letters from Iwo Jima, 
Stephen Frears for The Queen, and Paul Greengrass for United 93. As the great Ben Lyons once said about Silence, which is one of my favorite movies, he said, uh, it joins the list of movies like United 93, which are great movies, which I have no intention of ever seeing again. I've never seen United 93 again, but at one time in a vacuum, incredibly powerful, particularly that last 10 minutes. God, that scene of the passengers uh, just surging towards the cockpit. It is Absolutely gripping, well-directed by Greengrass. Of course, it's Marty. If I had to go with the number two, I'd probably go with Clint. Because like I said, Letters from Iwo Jima doesn't get nearly enough due. Yeah, and I will go with Martin Scorsese for The Departed. Uh, best actor was Forrest Whitaker, the last king of Scotland. Who else was nominated? Leonardo DiCaprio for Blood Diamond. Ryan Gosling for Half Nelson. Peter O'Toole for Venus. Will Smith for The Pursuit of Happiness. God, what a weak category again. Peter O'Toole is basically just playing Peter O'Toole in Venus, just an old guy in love with a young girl. Will Smith, Pursuit of Happiness, I thought was awfully hokey. Uh, Leo and Blood, listen, as much as I like Leo, I don't even think that's one of his best performances. I didn't like that his accent was in and out. It was a little bit forced. Forrest Whitaker is definitely good as a villainous character in Idi Amin, but I'd go with Ryan Gosling. Man, as a a teacher battling drug addiction, I thought he was uh, charming and yet... Heartbreaking at the same time, well-directed. I think Ryan Fleck directed it. I'd go with Gosling for Half Nelson. You know, I've never seen Half Nelson, and I'll have to check it out. But I'm looking over this list, too, and I guess I would go with Forrest Whitaker, but really I would want to pick Clive Owen for Children of Men for this picture, and I'm surprised that he didn't get nominated for this as well. Yeah, this is a brutal nomination here by the Academy. You're right. Best Actress was Helen Mirren. I feel like that was an easy one for the Queen. Who else was nominated? Penelope Cruz for Boulevard. Judy Dench for Notes on a Scandal, Meryl Streep, The Devil Wears Prada, and Kate Winslet, Little Children. Nominees alone, Best Actress, much stronger than Best Actor. Like Helen Mirren, as I mentioned, is the, the picture of stately precision in the Queen. Vauvert's an Almodovar film, which is excellent. Penelope Cruz, always great in his movies. Notes on a Scandal is surprisingly funny. I had no interest in watching it, and I saw it, and Judy Dench is amazing. I mean, gosh, she's cunning and she's mean-spirited. That's a really underrated movie. Meryl Streep, Devil Wears Prada. Again, I don't care about the fashion industry, but the way that she just says, that's all. I mean, the white hair, that is a great role from Meryl. And Little Children, I'd probably vote for Kate Winslet, to be honest with you. Little Children is a really dark movie. Um, It's about a child molester. We're going to talk with Jackie Earl Haley in a second, who comes out of prison, and about Kate Winslet having an affair with, uh, God, I forget his name, but uh, whatever the hell his name is. He's really good in the movie, Little Children. God, that's a, that's, a, that's a very strong category. I'd either go Penelope Cruz or Kate Winslet. I'll, I'll go the flip, flip the coin. I'll go with Kate Winslet, Little Children. Joe? All right. I guess I haven't seen Volver, so I can't flip the same coin. Since you went Winslet, I'm going to go Meryl Streep for The Devil Wears Prada. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people I know still, you know, that's one of her first roles that come to mind when they think of her, so I'll go with her for that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't Meryl mailing in, certainly. If anybody who knows the fashion industry and hot couture and Anna Wintour, apparently she just absolutely nailed it. Best Supporting Actor, speaking of nailing it, how funny is Alan Arkin in Little Miss Sunshine? He won his first Academy Award as Edwin Hoover. Who else was nominated? Jackie Earl Haley for Little Children, Jamon Hansu for Blood Diamond, Eddie Murphy for Dreamgirls, and Mark Wahlberg for The Departed. Well, it was supposed to be Eddie Murphy. He'd won a lot of the Critics Awards going into it, and then all of a sudden, everyone saw posters for Norbit and said, are we still going to give this guy an Oscar? And so Alan Arkin surprisingly won. He doesn't have a lot of screen time in Little Miss Sunshine. That's what was a surprise, but he's certainly unforgettable, especially when he's giving advice to his nephew about how to live his life. Jackie Earl Haley mesmerizing little children. 
God, playing a child molester, coming out of prison, uh, certainly grown up from his work in Bad News Bears. Eddie Murphy, listen, if you want to go career achievement, certainly earns an Oscar and deserves it, but I'll go with Mark Wahlberg as Sergeant Dingman. If Departed's going to win Best Picture, then I think one of the actors should get recognized. Wahlberg was the only actor nominated, and rightfully so. He was tremendous in The Departed. The way he's just belittling Leo simulates a fart noise. What's wrong? Don't you know any Shakespeare? Um, God, Wahlberg, the scene he goes head to head with Alec Baldwin is really good. He nails that, that role down to a T. I 100% agree. He, he's so good in that movie. I, I personally will go with Eddie Murphy for Dreamgirls just because him and Norbit coming out to kind of tank his chances at the Oscar is still used as an example today. I remember people making that comparison with Jennifer Lopez just for this last Oscar award. So I'll give it to Eddie Murphy for Dreamgirls. Best Supporting Actress, Jennifer Hudson, great voice in Dreamgirls. And Dreamgirls, by the way, I'm not crazy about musicals, as you know, but she's terrific in that movie. A lot of great music in there. No surprise, because she's a singer, but she won an Oscar. Who else was nominated? Adriana Barraza for Babel, Kate Blanchett for Notes on a Scandal, Abigail Breslin, Little Miss Sunshine, and Rinko Kikuchi for Babel. Again, I just got to mention Notes on a Scandal is really funny. Kate Blanchett's terrific, especially when she's being stalked and victimized by Judy Dench. I mean, it's a very troubling movie and yet very light on its touch. I like child performances. They don't get nearly enough recognition. Abigail Breslin, glad she got nominated. I'm going to go, though, with the Academy. I actually do think Jennifer Hudson deserved the Oscar, but I feel like Joe might go with Breslin, and he's probably right. Yeah, I will go with Abigail Breslin, too. Her performance is great in that. I can't imagine another child actor in that role. Um, though Jennifer Hudson is amazing in Dreamgirls. I love that movie, too, actually. Um, but I'll go with Abigail. Original screenplay is a tough one. Little Miss Sunshine won. Michael Arn, probably the right decision. But again, uh, Paul Haggis, I love. The great Canadian writer. He co-wrote Letters from Iwo Jima, which is an amazing script. I keep talking about it. I should explain it a little bit if you haven't seen it. It's World War II done from the Japanese perspective. So Clinton Flags of Our Fathers, which was from the American perspective, they did Letters from Iwo Jima. And I thought that was much more poignant because he showed the Japanese side of things. And the scene where they're committing mass suicide, I mean, it's incredible. A little bit of Sunshine won. Who else was nominated? Babel, Guillermo Ariaga, Letters from Iwo Jima, Iris Yamashita and Paul Haggis, Pan's Labyrinth, Guillermo del Toro, and The Queen by Peter Morgan. So I think Little Miss Sunshine's the right choice, Michael Arndt, but God, as Joe mentioned earlier, how the hell did Pan's Labyrinth not get nominated for Best Picture? Maybe Guillermo should have won for this. He got his due a sheep of water, but seriously, if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, do so immediately. 100% agree, and that's who I will go with, too. Just for your point earlier, it's highly original and so cool and and gross, but very touching at times. I, I love that movie. Definitely Pan's Labyrinth for me. And the last one was Best Adapted Screenplay. Bill Monaghan won based on the film Infernal Affairs. It was a remake. What else was nominated? Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan, Children of Men, Little Children, and Notes on a Scandal. Well, that's interesting. You know, I mentioned how the Best Picture nominees were kind of weak, and it was a weak year for movies, but those were probably my five favorite movies of the year. I mean, Best Adapted Screenplay. I mean, Children of Men, tremendous. Little Children, amazing. Notes on a Scandal, I've discussed. The Departed, I think, was the Best Picture. And Borat is like one of the funniest movies of the decade. I'm so happy it got nominated. I'd totally forgotten that. <laughs> I know everyone's going to say we should, Borat should have won. I mean, listen, I'm going to go with Monaghan for The Departed because it's so twisty. But honestly, Joe, what a great world this would be if Borat had actually won an Academy Award. Oh, 100%. I want to go with Children of Men so badly, but I'm going to have to go with Borat just because 
Also, could you imagine that speech that Sasha Baron Cohen would have given too? It would have been one of the, me- such a memorable speech at the Oscars that year. That <laughs> in character. That's nice. High five would have been amazing. <laughs> Uh, thanks so much uh, for listening to Cinefly. I appreciate all of you. Please go and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Spread the word. Hopefully the numbers are up after I inflame people about Ozark. And thanks, of course, to a filmmaker, Christian Phillips. Go check out Hammer, which is on VOD. Next week, we're going to talk about Rami, which is currently available on Hulu. I reviewed season one. Now I'm going to review season two. And two weeks from now, get ready. Spike Lee's got a new film on Netflix hitting June 12th called The Five Bloods. And I'll also review Judd Apatow's new movie starring Pete Davidson, that's the king of Staten Island, which is coming out VOD June 12th. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.